In this episode of Ask Paul Kirtley, we are going to talk about outfitting canoes, tooth problems on expeditions, finding wildlife while out wandering, saponins, chickweed and birch, blowing tinder bundles into flame, what's the optimal positioning, keeping gear dry on hikes, bushcraft course advice, just a little bit on that because we've talked about that before, and changing your ways and acquiring new skills, something that's important for all of us, myself included. Welcome, welcome to episode 47 of Ask Paul Kirtley. Now, it's been a couple of weeks since I recorded one of these and put one out. I've had a busy couple of weeks. There's a lot going on with my online courses. And if you want to learn more about those, get on my mailing list at paulkirtley.co.uk. I will be sending out information about those in the coming weeks. I've already sent some information out about one of them, but don't worry, you're not too late. If you join soon, go to paulkirtley.co.uk, get on my email list there so that I can send you updates about what's on the blog, but also other things like my online courses and special offers and competitions and whatnot. Go there, do that now, press pause. <laughs> Otherwise, um, what else have I been up to? I have been in the Netherlands at the winter bushcraft gathering there of the Dutch Bushcraft Foundation. That was a lot of fun. Lovely, lovely warm welcome from everybody there, both those involved officially with the organization and also everyone that I met there. It was an absolutely fantastic weekend. I had a great time. Um, even though I taught several sessions there and I did a live Ask Paul Kirtley, um, it wasn't stressful at all. It was just, it was easy. The most stressful thing about the whole trip was that when I arrived in Amsterdam um, airport, Schiphol airport, my luggage was still at London Gatwick. So we had to wait a while for my, for my tent and my boots and everything to catch me up. Um, so I was kept company by some lovely people. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Marika. We drank lots of coffee and waited for my bag to turn up a few hours later on the next flight. Other than that, the weekend was absolutely fantastic and we had a proper winter camp. It was frozen solid ground on the Friday when I arrived. It snowed overnight. We woke up to snow on the Saturday morning and had a lovely, lovely weekend. And I met some wonderful people, some of whom I've known for a long time online and it was great to meet them in person and other people I met for the first time everyone was super nice super fantastic to meet you all those of you that are enthusiasts and those of you that are involved professionally with bushcraft there's lots of good stuff going on in the netherlands at the moment it was really nice to be to be part of that and i was honored to be invited to that and i look forward to visiting again in the future um also, what else have I been doing? Last week, four days of five-star canoe training. Um, that's the highest level of canoe leadership uh, award that you can get in the UK. I haven't got the award yet. You have to do a training course first, and then you go away and do some consolidation, and then you come back and do the assessment. So having been a four-star leader for a while, I've now done my five-star five training, which was in some interesting 
conditions. Those of you that follow me and are connected with me on Facebook and Instagram might have seen some of those photographs already. I'll put one up here just to give you some indication of what the night navigation looked like um, in a snowstorm. That was quite interesting. Um, and uh, a couple of other photos. I'll just put a couple up here, all courtesy of Ray Goodwin, who took those photos while we're out doing our training. So if you're listening to this as a podcast, um, I'll pop them in the show notes as well. I'll pop a couple of photos in the show notes. And any links um, that I mention here are also in the show notes at paulkirtley.co.uk. Find episode 47. So yeah, it's been a busy few weeks. Sorry I didn't get one out last week. Um, I'm in the northeast at the moment, just for a day actually. Um, Drove from Wales yesterday. I'm driving back down south um, later on today. Been out for a walk and it's... It's a dingy, misty, murky, damp day today, but not too cold and actually really quite nice to be out. Um, And it almost feels like we're going to have an early spring. I think it was around about exactly this time last year that I sat in this area in the snow doing an Aspore Kirtley and it was really quite cold. Um, Now, apart from a little bit of snow in Wales last week, I haven't seen any snow really. It's been a really quite mild January so far. So I, if it carries on like this, I suspect we're going to start having um, some of the early spring greens coming up very early indeed. All right. Anyway, I know you are keen for me to get to the questions, so we'll crack on with that. Um, outfitting canoes. This is a question from Aaron Calliwert. I hope I pronounced your name properly there, Aaron. Dear Paul, I bought my own canoe with flotation bags, an old town Discovery 169. And my question is, can you make a video of how you outfitted your canoe? It would be nice to see yours versus Ray Goodwin's boat. Greetings, Aaron. Well, Aaron, I, I can do that at some point. I have added it to my list. I have quite a long list of suggestions and ideas for blogs and videos and in 2017 one of the things i'm aiming to do is try and uh, even though i put quite a lot of material out try and really focus on what people are asking me about and try and put out more material around that both in terms of questions that people are asking on ask paul Kirtley, and also other questions in comments on youtube questions in comments on my blog and elsewhere instagram if you're not following me on instagram please do um here's my uh, here's my name again for instagram if you're watching this on the video, Paul Kirtley on Instagram, please follow me there. It's one of my favorite platforms for sharing little snippets of information at the moment. It's nice and self-contained. It's a nice combination of the visual and the, the written word, which is compact and, and I like it a lot. So I'm using it a lot. Um, in terms of the canoe, um, I don't do anything particularly different to Ray. Uh, I mean, Ray has been my canoe coach and canoe mentor for most of my canoeing career. Um, since I started canoeing seriously about a decade ago. And I have to say, I picked up a lot of what I know from him. Um, and so what I do with my boat is very similar to what he does with his boat. And in case you're not quite sure where Aaron's coming from on this, um, Ray wrote a... Um, not exactly a guide, but he wrote quite a detailed blog post for the Frontier Bushcraft uh, blog, because Ray and I work together. We offer some training through my company, Frontier Bushcraft, and he wrote for the Frontier blog, so not my personal blog, but for the Frontier Bushcraft blog, he wrote uh, a really nice article on how he fits out a new boat when he gets one. Um, And I will certainly link that up here, 
um, on the on the YouTube if I can. Um, YouTube put some restrictions on what links you can put up to what sites, but I think I can link to Frontier here if I if I can. I'll put it up here, and it will definitely be in the show notes. Link straight to Ray's article, and it just goes through what he does with his airbags, with his mast foot, you know, rigging it so he can strap gear in, all that sort of thing. I don't do anything particularly different to that, Aaron. Um, I may put a video up at some point um, because people are, are asking me, yourself included, um, but I paddle a, a Mad River 15 foot um, Explorer that I've had for about eight years. I really love that boat and I have it set up pretty much like Ray has his set up. So there's not a big deal of difference there. So if you follow what Ray's done with his, you'll get to the point that is the same point that I'm at basically. So. All right, I am on my little camera today, so I'm gonna have to stop and start this a little bit because it only records for a short period of time before it stops anyway. Um, so I don't want it stopping halfway through me answering the question. So if it jumps a little bit, that's why. All right, next question is about tooth problems on expeditions. And this is from Mo and his question is, hi Paul, hope you're doing well. The question I have is, what do you do if you get something like toothache or earache and say you were away on an expedition or away from help in a situation like that? I know you should always carry things to deal with things like that, but it could happen. Um, and I was wondering what would you use for pain relief? All the best, Mo. Um, well, I carry non-prescription analgesics um, as a matter of course in my first aid kit. So I carry um, paracetamol, I carry aspirin, um, I carry anodine, which is a combination of aspirin and paracetamol, and it also has some caffeine in, which is quite good when you've got colds and that type of thing. Um, and I also carry ibuprofen for, um, particularly for soft tissue injuries and um, anything that involves something which requires anti-inflammatory so I, I carry that for that and I tend to restrict the ibuprofen for that. Um, you can use some of those things in combination for example you can use paracetamol and ibuprofen at the same time and that, that starts to be quite potent. Paracetamol works very well on me as a painkiller and so and I don't tend to take I don't suffer from headaches very much other than if I get dehydrated or very 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 tired or a combination of the two I'm, I'm thankful I know some people suffer a lot from headaches and migraines and whatnot but I don't so I tend not to need to take any sort of headache relief um, as a matter of course and I also I try and avoid taking them even when I do. So my first port of call is, you know, if I think I'm dehydrated is to get hydrated and also have a good night's sleep and that's often enough. So I tend not to pop a lot of painkillers. So when I do take them personally, they do have a good effect. But also when I'm on um, trips where we might be more uh, more remote, I will also maybe take some painkillers which are a little bit more difficult to get hold of. Um, and so uh, I'm not saying I do it in any dodgy way, but I'm just saying that, you know, you take things that are suitable for how far away you are. Um, what's quite good for toothache it are um, uh, non-prescription medicines that are designed for dealing with 
period pain. So they can be good things to carry with you in case of toothache for sort of very acute um, focused pain in one particular place. Um, so, so you can look out for those sorts of things. Um, and also if you are concerned about um, teeth being an issue on a trip, which they could be, um, people's fillings do come out, for example, um, then, or people's teeth can be cracked either by accident or just because it just happens while you're on a trip. It was gonna happen at some point, but just happens that you're on a two week trip or a three week trip or what have you. Um, it can be worth taking temporary filling um, as well as the tools to deal with that. And you can buy um, temporary filling. You can also take something like clove oil, which helps um, relief locally. So an emergency dental kit in your first aid kit, in your expedition first aid kit is something that I carry. Some extra uh, pain relief is something that I carry. And also one really important thing, prevention is better than cure, is go to the dentist regularly. If you go to the dentist regularly, um, you're going to get your teeth checked out and any incipient problems that might cause an issue further down the line they're going to be able to spot and deal with and so it's worth having a health check every year particularly if you're doing cold weather expeditions i've found that i don't have particularly sensitive teeth in terms of eating ice cream or whatnot but i find that if i am going to have any sensitivity to the cold it, it will come out on a cold weather trip. So a winter expedition, just breathing the cold air, if you've got a sensitive tooth, um, it's gonna make itself apparent. So it's worth having um, maybe in the autumn, at the end of the summer, before you go into your winter trips, if you're doing winter trips, it's worth going to the dentist at least once a, once a year just to have your teeth checked out and any issues can be dealt with that way. And also, if you feel like you do have an issue with your teeth, go and get it checked out. Go and, have a, go and get an appointment, have it looked at because you may save yourself quite a lot of time and agony and possibly cost if you deal with those things early. In terms of natural remedies, um, Nothing really works super, super well, but for example, in the UK and Northern Europe, um, if you take Herb Bennett, um, Woodhavens, um, the root, when you crush it, it smells similar to cloves or clove oil, and that's because it has pretty much the same chemical in there, and you can use that, pack, pack that onto a gum or a tooth where there's toothache, but it isn't gonna take it away completely by any means. So, finding wildlife while out wandering. This is a question from Paolo Roque, or Roque, Roque, I don't know how you pronounce that. Um, I'll say Roque, Paolo Roque, from Portugal. And he follows both Ashpaul Kirtley and my blog, and he likes the pragmatic way I explain things and the focus on knowledge instead of gear. Um, which is good. I'm glad you appreciate that, Paolo. Thank you. Um, the question that he has is, is there any technique or advice you can give on how to improve your chance of wildlife, sorry, of finding wildlife while wandering outdoors? I usually wander outdoors at the weekends, but I find it incredibly difficult to spot wildlife. If it's of any help, the biome where I live is Mediterranean forest. Cheers, Paolo. Cool. Well, Paolo, in terms of finding wildlife, um, a couple of things I could suggest. Three things that I would suggest. First off is move more slowly. 
and quietly than people do regularly when they're hiking in the forest. That's the first thing that I would say. Wearing uh, mute colours. You don't have to go out dressed like a paramilitary in full camo headgear from camouflage headgear from camouflage gear from head to toe rather. Um, but if you wear colours that blend in with your local environment that are relatively mute to so natural tones that fit in, like for example this black duvet jacket that I'm wearing at the moment doesn't fit in with the background that I'm you can see me even though it's not a bright color you can see me from a distance block, blocked out against the background whereas if I was wearing something that was more green and brown or one or the other that was of a shade of a lot of the background there I would blend in a lot more the other thing if you're watching this on video that you'll see is my face sticks out like a beacon so just wearing a cap, if I put my hand over my eyes there and put my face into shade, immediately that starts making my face less apparent. So again, you don't have to wear camouflage, but just putting a cap on, put a green or beige cap on that is going to both blend in in its own color, but also shade your face is a good thing. And then if you can have some sort of buff, like a green buff that you can pull up when you really want to be quiet, then it's only your eyes which will be in shadow. All of that makes a big difference in how you are seen and then the other thing you'll see is I move my hands about here you can see again they're like flags so if you can just take some lightweight gloves because I know you, if you're in the Mediterranean it's going to be relatively warm most of the year so if you can take some very thin fabric gloves that are of a similar color to the environment like a beigey greeny color a sandy color depending exactly where you are in Portugal that will show up much much less than your hands so there's a couple of things there just just wear mute colors wear a cap put some gloves on that will help you and then why are gloves really super important well one of the things that you should do to try and find wildlife more is carry some binoculars and i would reckon for for general wildlife eight times magnification is good and take for daylight use eight times 32 good quality binoculars are good and then you can use the binoculars to look into the environment so you can look further into the bush further into the forest penetrate with your gaze with your binoculars so you look into an area before you move into it and critically you look into an area before your sound has chance to travel into that area so if there's a deer or some other easily scared animal in that piece of forest you're going to see it and it might just be an ear twitching it might be a tail flicking it might be some other movement of the head up and down while it's feeding but you'll see that whereas you wouldn't necessarily see it with your naked eye and you will see it before it becomes aware of your presence the other thing to be aware of in that instance as well is also wind direction many animals particularly prey species are very sensitive to, to scent um, but also many predators who will avoid humans because they see them as dangerous and um, will will um, pick up on your scent and avoid you so think about where the, the the breeze is and you're much better off walking into the breeze so your scent is passing behind you so that the animals in front of you can't smell you than you are walking with the breeze passing over the back of your neck and taking your scent forwards to where the animals will pick up on your scent before you even see them so just think about the environment make yourself harder to see use your binoculars to see further into the environment and think about how else they might pick up sound and smell you will see a lot more then of course you can get into 
tracking, you can look, at, look for animal tracks and sign. You might ultimately be able to follow some tracks, but also if you're going back to the same area multiple times, make a mental note of where you see disturbances, where you see feeding sign, where you see plants having been nibbled, where you see bark having been nibbled, where you see nuts and other fruits having been nibbled and eaten, disturbed. Look for feeding sign of animals, look for droppings of animals, look, look for feces, look for hairs, and you will start to pick up an idea of where they are active. And you might not see them that day, but you, next time you go there, you think, well, that down there, there was quite a lot of deer activity last time. Animals are, to a certain extent, creatures of habit, and you may then be able to approach that area quietly, or maybe at a different time of day, dawn or dusk, for example, when those animals, maybe they're crepuscular, they're active more at dawn and dusk, you can see them because you know the area and you can get yourself in position, either just sit and be quiet, or you can move to the, to the area at the appropriate time of day. There's a very distracted, distraught, um, blackbird behind me. You can hear the alarm call. Um, something is bothering it. It's not me. It could be an owl coming out. It's starting to get dusky here. There's a lot of bird alarm calls going off behind me. So there's either somebody walking around there, although they didn't make that much noise when I came into the area. So I suspect there is something that predates on them nearby. And my guess at this time of day, it's, it's an owl. So that's, that's what you're hearing behind. So again, pick up on, picking up on those signs about activity gives you an idea about what's going on. Hopefully that helps. All right, let's move on quickly because it's getting dark. Next question, saponins, chickweed and birch. This is a question from Isa. I know this is from a long time ago, but it's relevant. Um, hi, Paul. I know chickweed is edible, even though it contains saponins. I believe birch leaves also contain saponins, but are they edible? Well, that's not a bad question, Isa. Um, so, for those of you that don't know, saponins are a natural form of soap, and you can see it particularly in some plants more than others. So soapwort is a classic example, although it's not very common. Um, horse chestnut um, is another plant that has a lot of saponins in its leaves and its uh, nuts. Um, even things like red campion have a good amount of saponins and in fact a lot of plants have saponins in them. They're fairly common naturally occurring chemicals which in, um, <coughs> excuse me, in small amounts are not particularly harmful. Um, in moderate amounts when you crush the leaves for example up with water you'll get a foam um, so you can use birch leaves for hygiene. You've probably heard me talk about that in the past. Um, same as you can for soapwort, same as you can with horse chestnut leaves, birch leaves. A lot of these plants that have saponins in the leaves, you can crush them up with water and use them for personal hygiene. Um, but in high quantity, saponins are toxic, um, both to us and to other animals. And so we don't want to be consuming high levels of saponins. And so there isn't really any correlation between whether or not a plant contains some saponins and whether or not it's edible. Um, you have to learn the plants on a case by case basis. So what I would say is just the fact that there are saponins present doesn't make the plant poisonous inedible for example chickweed we can eat chickweed i have heard of, ca of cases of cows of cattle being poisoned by eating kilos and kilos and kilos of saponins but 
Um, I'm not sure how common that is. And also I don't know of anybody at all who has any issues with putting some chickweed into a salad, for example, and eating that. It's absolutely fine. However, some other uh, species, horse chestnut being one, um, you don't want to be eating the leaves or the nuts there because they're toxic. And it's not often the saponins go hand in hand. Toxic levels of saponins often go hand in hand with other toxins. So the fact that there are saponins there isn't really an indicator as to whether or not they are edible. Now, um, I don't think there's anything to indicate that eating birch leaves is going to poison you, but equally, I've heard people say that they're a good salad leaf. I don't think they are they're quite full of cellulose quite quickly they don't taste particularly great um, and i think sometimes people get confused between birch and beech now beech leaves when they first come out i'm not saying you do Isa, I know you're a student on my tree and plant course and therefore I know you're not confused between birch and beech um, you're one of the last people who would be confused between birch and beech but i think you see a lot of people regurgitating information online and I see people saying birch is edible in the spring. Um, I think what they've done is they've misremembered the fact that beech leaves when they first appear, when they're gossamer thin, very light green, not full of cellulose and not stiff, when they're literally just come out of the buds are a good spring edible leaf and that somehow gets mistranslated in the brain and people say that birch leaves are a good edible. I don't think they are and particularly if you look at places where people live where birch are one of the few leaves present in terms of deciduous trees there is no great tradition of them being used as a plant food source um, and therefore I think that isn't the case. So no you're not going to poison yourself eating birch leaves but equally I don't think there's much point in doing so. Blowing tinder bundles to flame. This is a question from, who's this from? Kevin Reiter from Wilderness Safety Institute in Texas. Hi, Kevin. Um, Kevin's question is, when blowing a tinder bundle into flame, I was always taught to hold the bundle at or above eye level so the air oxygen will be pulled up and through the bundle as your breath passes through it, providing even more oxygen to the ember. Um, in a great number of videos, I've been seeing with the advent of the internet, the majority of people blow down on the bundle held very low. Do you think this is just another way to perform the technique or do you think there's a lack of knowledge behind it? I also don't see very many who actually gently wave the bundle back and forth. Okay, Kevin, so yeah, um, a couple of points there. First is, I think the most important thing is to actually be blowing in the right place in the bundle um, and, you know, make sure that you position the ember or, or whatever it is that you're blowing into flame as the, as the source in the center of that bird's nest in the bundle, that you're actually blowing on that, that you've got enough material in contact with it. And I know you, you know this, but personally, this is what I think is important. Whether you're blowing slightly down or slightly up in terms of actually getting the oxygen into it, I don't think it makes a huge amount of difference as long as you're blowing in the right spot. I think though, if you're blowing down, you are going the heat, heat rises, smoke rises, you're going to get a face full of smoke if you're blowing down onto it. Um, I think you're probably better off holding it just directly in front of your face. And then the smoke is more likely to go up. And then yes, when you breathe in, just to make sure you're not breathing smoke in and also to keep the air moving through it, 
gently waft it. So you, 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 you blow and you waft as you breathe in. That keeps the oxygen flowing through a little bit more. Also means that you're not breathing in so much smoke. I think other important things are that you don't hold it too close to your, your mouth. I saw a few people on a session at the, at the Dutch Bushcraft meet the other week and they were trying to blow some embers into flame and it was right really close to their mouth like you know two centimeters away from the mouth blowing really hard and what that's going to do is push a lot of moisture straight into the bundle it's also going to demolish particularly if it's a bow drill or a hand drill or other friction phylating ember it's going to demolish the ember if you blow really super hard on it so a gentle blow about at the uh, the, the strength that you would be whistling maybe slightly stronger steady constant blow several inches away from the face maybe about 10 cent 10 15 centimeters away from the face blow steadily into that and when you're breathing in move it through back in front of the face that is absolutely fine i don't think there's a huge advantage of holding it up although you can do but i think if you hold it down more than anything you're going to get a face full of smoke and then when it does flame you're also going to singe your eyebrows so for all of those reasons um, and if you hold it low you've got less distance to to move it you're gonna to have to start doing other things so holding it in front of your face that makes sense and having that distance to waft it backwards and forwards also makes sense but do bear in mind keeping it not too close to your mouth so you don't demolish the ember and you don't blow too much you don't spit into it basically okay how are we doing for time not bad okay keeping gear dry on hikes this is from Stephen Jay and this is from a little while ago back in the autumn but it's still relevant now particularly for those of us that are in the temperate as opposed to the boreal um, first off want to say thanks for all your time that you put in to help people such as myself and sorry for the lengthy question I just returned from a hiking trip to Lake Superior Trail in the Porcupine Mountains which is in Upper Michigan on the southern coast of Lake Superior I was very well prepared so I thought but ended up getting pounded by thunderstorms three nights in a row which ended up in me throwing in the towel and cutting my hike in half. I had everything wrapped in multiple waterproofers but eventually the wet penetrated all of my gear without having time to start a fire every morning to dry everything out before carrying on. What could I have done differently as far as when I repack everything into my sack or just to stay organized and dry through such hard conditions? Well that's an interesting question Stephen. Um, without knowing exactly how your kit got wet um i know you said it got wet due to the thunderstorm and you had it in some waterproofers but it got wet anyway but um i i you talked about thunderstorms three nights in a row and not having a fire in the morning to dry out so it sounds to me like it got wet overnight so i don't know whether that's something about your camp setup whether you had gear in a in a rucksack outside of a tarp or a tent and it's got rained on overnight and the water's got in or whether it was underneath your shelter and it got wet anyway or whether or not you just got wet towards the end of the day and didn't have a chance to dry out either in the evening or the morning um, but either way um, fundamentally your gear should be packed in such a way when it's packed that it doesn't get wet and it shouldn't get wet um, from rain certainly and if you think you're going to be near or crossing water then you should pack it in a way that you can actually cross the water and your gear not get wet and for me um, the best way to do that is use dry liners for your rucksack and for your gear that are suitable for immersion 
Um, so the sort of thing that you would put in uh, a canoe pack to keep a sleeping bag dry, for example, as opposed to a very thin, just shower-proof uh, stuff sack often sold for hiking which is supposed to keep things dry because in my experience the seams on those can start to let water through and even some of the fabrics will let things uh, let water through and if you read the small print on some of those lightweight uh, stuff sacks waterproof lightweight stuff sacks it says on the small print on the back of the packaging not suitable for immersion that to me immediately rings alarm bells um, because when you are subject to a lot of water whether that's coming out of the sky or whether you your kit ends up in water it's going to get wet and remember your kit can end up in water just with your pack laying on the ground a lot of water coming down and ending up being puddles around and you just happen to have your rucksack in one of those overnight those things do and can happen on trips even with the best intentions so I appreciate that weight is at a premium when you're carrying gear but if you think you're going to have a lot of water at least a, a liner that your main kit your sleeping kit goes into during the day that um, is even if you threw it in a river it's not going to let water in so dry bags by the likes of Ortlieb or seal line and there are some others as well of a similar nature that are suitable for going into canoe packs would be what i would be looking at yes they weigh a little bit more than lightweight rucksack liners that are designed just for hiking but they protect your gear so much more and as i say if you're making any sort of water crossing you know stream crossings river crossings where even if you don't intentionally put your pack in the water but you might fall in the water and your pack ends up in the water before you manage to get up on your feet again i would be making sure that everything inside that pack is fully waterproofed and then of course if you want to organize your kit within that you can use ultra lightweight stuff sacks to organize small uh, you know spare socks and under underwear and those sorts of things and then other bits and pieces and you can even have those color coded but make sure that it all rolls up into something which will clip and will resist immersion that would be my first piece of advice if your gear is getting wet while you're in it while you're in your tent or in your tarp if your sleeping kit's getting wet under those circumstances then you need to take a, a second look at how you're pitching your camp and maybe some of the equipment that is supposed to be keeping you dry that, that isn't if your clothing is getting wet while you're out and about either in camp or hiking if your clothing is getting super super wet through your waterproof clothing then maybe you need to take a second look at the waterproof clothing that you have and and invest in something that's um, maybe either newer maybe you're using old stuff I don't know or stuff that's maybe a little bit more robust might be more expensive but if it means that it saves your trip it's probably worthwhile and then the other thing I would say and I'm talking quite fast here because it's getting dark, but the other thing I would say is um, there's nothing wrong with stopping for a day on a trip. Um, I appreciate you might have had an A to B route that you had to get to, but if things happen on a trip where you need to stop and sort them out, stop and sort them out if you've got the luxury of, uh, of some flexibility with your end time or you can take a shortcut to cut out some of the route. Um, it sounded to me like you, you, you bugged out of the route anyway, you took an emergency route out and got back to where you wanted to be out quicker than um, you would have done otherwise. Um, maybe take, take a day, get a fire going, get your kit dried out, get yourself sorted out, you know, get, get yourself dry, you know, sort your feet out, whatever needs to be done 
and get your get your head together get everything organized and then carry on the next day maybe that is an option as well to think about for future for future reference um, and also just generally if you put a little bit of contingency time into a trip if you need it um, for repairing gear for uh, making up time because you've been unexpectedly slow on a particular section of the route or you've had particularly bad weather then your whole trip isn't completely scuppered just by one thing going wrong so put a little bit of flex in there as well and then you can absorb those issues when when they do occur so there's a couple of suggestions some of them gear related and some of them a little bit more philosophical and and in terms of how you plan your trips um, and hopefully that's helpful if you've got more specific questions because it was quite a general question you know if you if something if you want a, an answer to a particular thing that happened that is more specific than the, the advice i've given you just send me in another question Stephen, and i will be happy to answer it because i think it's important you know those of you that are watching this and you're going out and you're doing real things out in the wild you're doing real trips making journeys using your skills along the way um, you need to be as well prepared as possible in terms of your equipment in terms of your knowledge in terms of your skills and i'm happy to help you with that as much as i can right um it is really getting quite dark here um this little camera is doing remarkably well but you can see when i bring my phone up to my face <laughs> That's not a super bright phone, it's just that the, uh, the, the, it is quite dark and the camera is trying its best to resolve uh, the dark conditions, but now my phone seems very bright, shining on my face. Um, so this is from Robin, Rob, and his question is, uh, well, first off, he says, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you. Thank you, Robin. I had a very good Christmas, thanks. And the new year is off to a decent start um, his question is he's after some advice on what sort of course to do i've seen a few companies offering ncfe uh, that's uh, northern counties further education um, starting at level two up to four i'm on a limited budget but have a vast amount of experience and knowledge in some areas could you please recommend the way for me to go as i'm wanting to move into the bushcraft type of work now i'm no longer involved in the military well, a couple of things I would say, Rob, there, um, not to be patronising, but first off, um, civilian uh, teaching world is quite different to um, military teaching world in terms of <laughs> type of students that you might have and also the formats that you might be teaching in, although superficially they might seem somewhat similar. So one piece of advice I would give you just from off the bat is maybe see if you can assist somewhere um, with civilian groups near to where you live. Um, so that you get some idea of what that works like just to double check that that is worth you investing time and money into training in some civilian uh, certifications if that's the way you want to go that's something that i would say is probably time well invested because it may save you some money um, in the in the medium term that's the first thing i would do um, and then, yes, there are some uh, bushcraft awards which are certified through the NCFE, but they are not NGB awards. It's not like the ML, the summer ML being ratified by um, the Mountain Leader Training Association. It's not like the um, canoe leader training that I've just done um, that is through British Canoeing. There is no NGB award in bushcraft. So first off i would say there's nothing to stop you going to work as an assistant on bushcraft courses at a school now you have everything that you need because you don't need a particular qualification equally if you want some training in bushcraft 
go and find the best school that you can afford to attend and learn the skills themselves. Um, don't mean to be rude to, to any military guys out there. I've got the biggest, vast, vastest respect for people in the military and the skills that you have and the skills that you need. I've worked with military groups to teach particular skills and I have friends who are in the military. I have students who have been in the military. I have students who still are in the military who come on my civilian courses. I have nothing but respect for the work that you do and you have my 100% support in that work. Equally, there, there are a lot of people who are in the military who've done some survival training, they've done some field craft training, um, and they think that they know as much bushcraft as I do because they did a two-week combat survival course. You don't, I'm sorry. I've spent 10 years teaching professionally and researching and developing skills, and my colleagues have as well. And I have been involved in learning bushcraft as opposed to military combat survival um, for many, many years longer than that. So with all due respect, you can't pick that up in two weeks on a course that is aimed at people that are doing a particular job in the military. I've had students who've been on, who have been fast jet pilots, who've been on many survival courses, escape innovation courses. I've, I've worked with people who have been head of particular nations survival schools and have done many combat survival courses around the world with particularly with special forces. Those guys, they know a lot, but equally they're um, like we all should be, that everybody is, and this feeds on to the next question, everybody that is playing at a high level also accepts the fact there's more to learn. So even if you think you do know a lot coming out of the military, don't be resistant to learning stuff from civilians as well. And don't be resistant to learning stuff from people who have been doing what they do in the civilian world for a long time. So um, that may have come across as being negative about the training in the military. It's not meant to be at all. What I'm saying is the emphasis is different. The onus is different and just be open to what you can learn in the civilian world and be open to just going along and assisting and seeing if it's right for you to start off with um, and whether or not that fits. Because I've had students who've come along and found what I do to be really quite different to what they thought it was based on having done some stuff in the military. So um, before you throw, so what I'm trying to say is before you throw loads of money at a course because it's what you think you can do, try and get some experience. Maybe go on a short course, short civilian course. Maybe see if you can do some assisting on uh, courses with a local bushcraft school, a local provider, and see if it's right for you. And then look at the options available to you to get some qualifications that will allow you to get the insurance that you need, for example, or to get access to land so that you can prove to a landowner that you've, you've got a, a certain amount of competence or um, a certain amount of devotion to the subject that you haven't just turned up and decided that that's what I want to do. And the NCF, NCFE courses are one of the routes to do that, but by all means, they're not the only route. For example, I've never done an NCFE accredited course. Um, I have to demonstrate industry best practice when I get proper full insurance cover for example and I have to have other things in place but um, there are many routes so what I would say is dip your toe in the water see if you like it on the other side of the fence in the civilian world and then go from there and by all means come back and ask some more questions.
Last question, this is from Jason. So Jason's in Canada and he's thanking me for my videos and YouTube and blogs and he says he finds them to be a valuable resource for information as I continually learn more about being in the backcountry here in Canada. Often on your videos you've relied upon your extensive bushcraft experience to voice your opinions and provide useful tips to your viewers. My question for you, how often have you had to change your own ways of doing things after learning something new from another experienced person? Some examples would be great. What are your own personal resources for acquiring new skills in bushcraft and the outdoors in general? Thanks again and I look forward to seeing more episodes of Ask Paul Kirtley. Um, this camera's really struggling now, so I may have to um, revisit this, uh, Jason. But the, to answer your question in short, I think you always need to be open to learning. Even if other people consider you an expert, um, as some people do with me, I'm uncomfortable with that moniker. Um, I am just happy to be sharing what I know with people who want to learn and will benefit from what I what I know and that has always been my approach and I've tried to be as much of a sponge as possible from really good quality well-respected sources so working with people like Lars Falt, working with Ray Mears, working with David Scott Donnellan, working with Ray Goodwin, working with um, any number of people who you would not have heard of before, both in terms of bushcraft and survival, but also professionals in the world of, of stalking, in terms of land management, in terms of forestry, in terms of um, countryside and wildlife management, just learning as much as possible from those professionals, as well as learning what I can learn from people when I travel and they might be people who are living very very close to the land such as Sami that I spent time with in northern Sweden or Hadza that I spent time with in Africa but also I remember I did a dive trip in Thailand and we did multiple dives in different places we did some scuba uh, diving but we also did some snorkeling on beaches and in between some of those um, some of those stops um, the guy on one of the guys on the boat that was driving the boats um, was doing some fishing with a triple hook um, catching various things off the back of the boat um, he caught some squid um, in quite an interesting way which he had in a bucket on the deck and I learned stuff from him so I think you've always got to have an eye to, to learn from people in terms of changing uh, existing ideas yes I think you just have to have an approach to knowledge which doesn't set things as absolute facts I think way too often these days things are portrayed as this is fact this is carved in stone um, everything that we know about the world is by um, exploration it's by um, experimentation it's by passing knowledge on from person to person and the stuff that the stuff that persists is the stuff that continues to work the stuff that falls by the wayside is the stuff that doesn't work and one of the things that I find a bit frustrating is the fact that people um, make suppositions about what will work um, particularly in terms of gear but also in terms of technique without actually trying them there's nothing that I talk about that I haven't tried and I haven't done but equally if somebody shows me a different way of doing something that's interesting that I've not seen before I'm happy to take that on board and happy to give credit where credit is due and 
we constantly go through life where our ideas are overturned and um, but the stuff that persists is is the stuff that we keep and i think that's the that's the way to approach it because otherwise you end up keeping a bunch of stuff that is not worth keeping if you're open to change and you're open to people showing you things that tweak your existing knowledge that add to your existing knowledge that tweak your perspective that tweak your technique you can only get better and better and better but you have to be very honest with yourself you have to be very honest um, with other people um, as I am with my readership and viewership and it would be very easy for me as, uh, as somebody that people look to to kind of close down and kind of just keep sharing what I know if I'm wrong on things I'm happy to say people constantly give me feedback on um, what I do and some of it I have to take with a grain of salt other thing other people come from a position where they're in a different geography and they're in a different place in terms of their life they've got different le levels of experience or different areas of experience and I'm constantly um, amazed by how helpful people are in sending information in or different perspectives and that's then my choice whether or not I take or leave that or, or go away and experiment with certain things and I think that's the way to the way to be. I come at this from a love for the subject. I come at this from a desire to pass on the most useful information that I can pass on to other people. And I'm not going to do that if I get ego driven and just go, no, my way or the highway, this is the way that you should be doing it because I say so. That doesn't help anybody. That just makes me look like a dick. And it also um, it also doesn't help the person that I'm aiming to help. I'm here to help people. Um, because I believe that this knowledge, the knowledge that actually works, not the knowledge that people suppose works without trying it, the knowledge that works that is based on people's experience and passing it on, it should be passed on to for future generations. And therefore, it's incumbent upon me to be as open to getting that as right as possible. And so that, that's my approach. And the, the, there are umpteen examples where people have showed me little tweaks, little changes to things that I do, that I've taken on board. Students, I watch, you know, it's fantastic. Teaching is a two-way street. Um, this is the last thing I'll say on this because I can hardly see myself on the camera anymore. Maybe if I do, if I do this, put the put the phone underneath my face, you can you can see my face on the on the camera. This camera doesn't have an infrared um, torch on it, so it's getting very dark. Um, but I appreciate a lot of people listen to this on a podcast anyway, so it makes no difference to you guys whatsoever, guys and girls. Um, yeah, just the number of times when I have showed a student a technique and then they've done something that's made me think about the technique differently, um, either teaching the technique differently or doing the technique differently. Um, lots and lots of times that's happened where because of their size or their shape or their experience doing other things, I've thought, mm, maybe, maybe that, that's different. And that happens over and over again. That doesn't mean to say that what I teach you is, is wrong and you should wait and wait for me to hone it for another 10 years. But what it does mean is that the things I've been doing for a long time have been, you know, there's a steep learning curve and then as you as you become better and better at both doing and teaching the, the number of changes that happen to that technique become less and less it's not because you're less open to it it's just because you've got it nailed but equally look at any top performer in any sport for example they're constantly trying to hone their technique even if the incremental gains are minuscule you're constantly open to being 
shown a better way of doing things, whether you're playing golf, whether you're playing tennis, whether you're a triathlete, whatever you're doing, you're constantly looking for that extra tweak that's gonna make your technique better, as well as all the fitness work as well. And I think you, if you're really, really interested in a lot of the skills that, we, that we're interested in, you take the same approach that you get the basics in place first. And don't forget to put those building blocks in, in place. Just the same as in martial arts, within bushcraft, the most important techniques are those core, fundamental, baseline, concrete, cornerstone, if you like, in terms of putting the foundations in, skills, and then you fill that in, you get a really solid base, and then you build the more esoteric things on top of that, or the, or the techniques that are less widely applicable, but very useful in certain circumstances. Get those widely applicable, really useful techniques, honed to start off with, because they're always going to be the ones that you can rely on, and that's what you should be doing, rather than, rather than running to the more esoteric, and I see that a lot as well. People try and find the newest, the most different they find an old book they find something really unusual and they highlight it get the basics sorted feather sticks bow drill tree and plant identification for where you live your ability to camp out in all seasons wildlife tracking natural navigation so that you can find the way by the sun and the moon and the stars get all of that stuff nailed yeah, if there are any weaknesses there, you should be working on them. And that's the approach that I take. Look at the weaknesses, work on them. And it's going very dark now. So I will leave you, uh, leave that there, Jason, but really good question. What I would like from you, um, listeners and, and viewers, is um, I mentioned a couple of episodes ago to think about where you want your bushcraft skills to go in 2017. So what would be super duper? You've had a couple of weeks to think about it if you listen to those um, episodes when they came out. What I would like you to do, go to my blog, paulkirtley.co.uk, find episode 47. If you're listening to this on a podcast or if you're watching or listening directly via my blog, go to the comments there and tell me the three areas of bushcraft that you would most like to improve in 2017. And if you're watching this on YouTube, you can do it in the comments directly under the YouTube video as well. All right, so the three areas of bushcraft that for you are the areas that you most want to improve um, in 2017. What's your focus this year? And that'd be really interesting for me to know because maybe I can help you with that and uh, we can go from there. And if you've got any questions around that, um, send in the questions for a future episode of Ask Paul Kirtley. I am getting through the questions. I do have a backlog still, but going forwards, um, my diary is a little clearer in the coming weeks. I should be able to get more episodes out. Um, I see that Adrian Spring has already left me a raft of voice messages in the last few days. I will get, start getting to those, but it'd be great to hear from the rest of you as well. And we will keep pushing forwards with the Aspore Kirtley uh, sessions as a way to help you with improving your bushcraft skills and your bushcraft knowledge through 2017. And so without further ado, thanks for watching. I look forward to your three areas of focus in the comments and I will speak to you soon. Take care and take care of yourself in the outdoors, especially. See you soon.